Loki. Hello, Jacob. Pleasure to be here. Good to have you on. A man possessed by the search for wisdom, it seems, at times. Yeah, that's very much. Uh, insofar as we are possessed by love, um, yeah, I think so, yes. That would be a fair way of putting it. I was um, watching, so I've been you know, following your Awakening from the Meaning Crisis um, series, which is a, just amazing in terms of breadth, just the amount of books that are channeling through your brain and body. Um, but obviously been a sort of student of the Dialogos um, conversations that you've been having um, this year with people like Jordan and Guy and just and Chris and Chris, of course, and Andrew Taggart and Johannes and quite a network of people, um, which by the way, just sort of appreciate the way that you're always kind of giving recognition to all of the people's work that's going into to what you're doing. Um, I think that's but, important to do. I think it's very important to do. Yeah, it's really, there's a sense of like, when John is articulating John's point, you're actually getting like a map of the whole sort of terrain of things which have come into it. Yeah, and to, to thank you for saying that. And also to give, um, to give recognition to, you know, the distributed cognition that's actually at work. Um, and to really, I'm really trying to exemplify, even when I'm speaking monologically, I want to try to emphasize that deep reason, deep reflection, deep insight, deep questioning are ultimately all dialogical in nature. I'm trying to break, I'm trying to, in, in many ways, in many manner, right, trying to um, break out of this, you know, this monolithic, monistic um, mind, like the, we have this picture of the mind as this completely self-enclosed, self-discoursing, self-drive, like all of that, that, that completely self-enclosed um, understanding of who and what our, 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 our meaning making is and what the mind is. Um, and this is also, like I mentioned in many places, you've probably seen, this is very much in consonance with a movement within cognitive science called 4E Cognitive Science, which is to try and not see the mind as something I possess in my head, but something that I participate in between my brain and my body and my embodied brain and the world, right? Um, and so there's a deep connection <clears throat> between that model of the mind that is emerging in cognitive science, which I think is fundamentally on the right track, and the, the, the ancient ideas that reason and reflection, insight, aspiration, all these things are inherently dialogical in nature. So not only do I feel there's a moral point, which is significant and important to sharing credit, I want to point to distributed cognition, and I want to point to dialogical rationality and try to exemplify them as much as possible so that people can see, not just, not just you know, hear what I'm referring to, but they can see it exemplified in how I'm trying to practice it before them. So it's actually very important to me. It's, it's, it's right practice for me in a deep sense. Mm. It's, part of my, it's part of like my spiritual practice to try and do that more and more and more. 
it's, it seems like it's a kind of, um, it's like a meta relationship that's being represented that kind of goes up and down all of the levels of the stack um, of being, you know, it's kind of yeah. like the, the relationship with world is dialogic. And then within that, you know, there's the intertextuality. Sorry, I'm getting stupid email notification. Um, that's okay. To figure out how to turn those off. It's it's in relationship with the world, and then within self, a dialogue between all of the things that are coming from world. You know, mother yes. and father, and philosophers, yeah. and yeah. everything. I think that's I think that's really important. Um, so you, that affords me an opportunity to uh, balance things out a little bit, because. Uh, for obvious reasons, uh, I've been emphasizing the what Chris and I, Christopher Master Pietro and I call the horizontal aspects of dialectic. Um, dialectic is the, the the psychotechnology that scaffolds you into the process of dialogos, mm. um, right? Um, it's like it's like a, it's like a set of directions to direct your attention and your, or the way you're coupling to the world, so that dialogos can be afforded. But one of the directions of dialectic is the horizontal. It's the interpersonal one. And that's the one that I get to um, practice with Guy and Jordan and Chris and Andrew Sweeney, et cetera, um, Zach Stein. Um, but what you just mentioned is also right. And this was integral to Plato, uh, the Platonic model, right? There's also what you might call the vertical, that intra-ontological that you, you, you have to sort of practice individually. Uh, Stephen Batchelor says, we're always alone with others, which I think is the title of one of his books, which is a great way of putting it. But this, 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 as you said, this, this, how, you remember what Plato does in the, in the Republic, where the model of the justice in the city is reflected in the model of in the justice between the elements of the psyche and vice versa. And they mutually afford and conform to each other. Um, so you, you, it's exactly that, that inner dialogos and that outer dialogos are actually just like, like the left and right fields of vision that you see through into depth perception. You're always, you're always looking through them uh, to what, what, is, what grounds the two of them together. Um, and that's when, when that starts to happen, that's when you really get a sense of dialogos. And so part of what I'm gonna do in the, in the, in the next series uh, after Socrates um, is I'm going to uh, I mean, I'm going to talk a lot about the horizontal because you've seen a lot of the work I've been doing with a lot of people that I owe a lot to. Um, but I'll also be bringing out that vertical uh, and then showing how they're integrated together. So that, I mean, that, that's very exciting for me because when those two uh, resonate with each other, you get, you, get, you get to a place that is a field of grounding and affording of profound... Uh, transformation. There are a lot of um, pathways opening up. This is you're saying all of that. Um, things that I've been kind of thinking about recently. I mean, first and foremost, there's something about the the way in which the the mystic um, or the, or the, or the wisdom teacher or the religious, um, prophet very often is speaking in, um, in relationship to the environment 
very often kind of using metaphors derived from nature or speaking in parable. And I think there's some relationship between this and the, the way in which our cognition uh, takes place outside of our bodies in relationship to the aesthetic of the oh, environment. Oh, yeah, Jacob, I think that's a very astute observation. Um, there is, I think, a deep continuity, and that's a phrase that my, my friend and colleague, Evan Thompson, has introduced in the four epochs on. But I think there's a deep continuity between the ineffable and, and, and enacted mystery of everyday cognition and the ineffable and enacted mystery of some of our most ultimate experiences. And I'm working on a book with Daniel Gregg on this called uh, The Cognitive Continuum from Insight to Enlightenment, that the machinery that you are using, uh, I was, as I mentioned, I was reading, I'm reading this book right now by uh, Esther Lightcap Meek, Longing to Know, it was recommended to me. Um, and she's actually making a, a very convergent argument. It's convergent because both she and I are deeply influenced by the work of Michael Polanyi. But there's a deep continuity. I, I want to use her example because it's a, let me just use it as an analogy. So she talks about, because uh, I, I um, it's very similar to some of the ones I use, but it's a new one. So I don't know if you've seen it, there's these called magic eye uh, pictures. And there's a bunch of colored dots and you sort of move the picture, you do the zoom in out, optimal gripping, and then what'll happen is it'll suddenly snap. You'll get this aha, you'll get an insight experience and suddenly you'll see a three-dimensional dolphin leaping out of the water and it just sort of catches, right? And she talks about how like you go from looking at, you'll recognize some of this language, to looking through, you, you go from sort of seeing all the dots to seeing the dolphin, seeing a deeper dimension. And the point is, um, that's just an, ex uh, an extraordinary example of something we're doing moment to moment. You're doing it right now. You're taking all the pixels on your screen, right? And, and the complicated subtle motions are, of changes in variance and color and hue of, of my face and you're making a face. And, and then you're looking through that face into my mind and into my thoughts. And you're doing it like that. And if I ask you, how do you do it? How do you get that depth, that ontological depth perception? You'll go, well, I don't know. It's, and it has an aspect of insight and revelation. And you have to sort of you know, entrust yourself to an embodied process and a skillful way of coupling to the world. And then she's making the argument, and she's a theist, and that's where I differ from her, but she says, that's similar to how we, how we see God, right? And, and, and what I think she's meaning is that there's a deep continuity between our most mystical experiences and our most everyday experience, because our everyday experience contains some of that mystery that become more aware of when, when it is mystery that's embedded within an awe experience. So I think there is, in fact, I think what you're saying there is exactly right. I think that it's not just that the, the wisdom teachers or mystics are you know, using metaphor. I think they're actually affording a realization of the continuity between your everyday experience and your ultimate experiences. I mean, this is captured in Zen, right? Uh, the very the famous Zen parable. You know, before I, before I 
did Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. While I was doing Zen, mountains aren't, weren't mountains and rivers weren't rivers. And then I was, when I was done doing Zen, mountains were mountains and rivers were rivers. Notice how I have to use my intonation to convey mm. the difference, right? And, and so it's very important. And, and, and uh, I'm sorry, I'm talking a while, but this is an, a, a crucial point. This, 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 this sense of a deep continuity is an alternative way of relating the transcendent to the imminent that breaks away from sort of the two worlds mythology that has tended to build an inaccessible fortress of mystique around um, the transcendent uh, and, 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 uh, and, and then make it very easily translatable into the absurd impossible that can just be ignored, right? But if I make you realize that that ultimate, and it is, that ultimate is awe-inspiring, and it is due of reverence. I'm not denying that. But if I make you realize that that is, has a deep continuity with how you're seeing my face, then you can't dismiss it or ignore it as an, uh, uh, as an absurd impossibility. And so I want to try and break out of the two worlds mythology and the one that builds the spiritual as this, you know, as this thing that is fortified by supernaturalistic mystique. And so that's why I got very excited by what you said, because it's an insight, right, that points to an alternative way, an alternative grammar of thinking about what these teachers have said to us that can perhaps remove it from a two worlds mythology in which it has been encrusted. What were you saying, John? Um, well, thank you, thank you. Yeah, that's really nice. I love just like throwing the piece out and then watching you do a little transformation on it and then it's kind of more um, exalted. It's, so I've been, I'm in uh, Athens right now. Uh, and I have been for the last three months. So staying with my parents wow. for quarantine. Uh, You're in Athens, Greece? Yes. Wow. That's a nice place. Yeah, it's been um, probably more positive than a few people's quarantine. Difficult at times, of course. Um, but one of the things I've been doing is spending a lot of time in Greek Orthodox churches, um, just sort of oh, yeah. the church from a different, you know. Yeah. My, I grew up with the Anglican church, but... Um, one of the things you note in there is, you know, I'm kind of sitting in presence and observing, um, observing the space and observing the icons and so forth. But the first thing is you see the difference with the way that the people, the Greek cultural relationship with it, they don't really um, look around and look up in the way that I'm doing. They kind of just shuffle in, go straight to the icon at the front and kiss the icon. And there's kind of a very in, like private, um, slightly imbued with shame kind of a feeling thing going right. on. Um, and the, the aesthetic of the churches, and I'm definitely a sort of believer in the need to build transcendent um, environments, but it always has this feeling of like just being on the cusp of something, but you can't yeah. quite get it. Yeah. You know, it's like beautiful and golden and the, the eye of Horus is up there somewhere looking yeah. out at you, but it's a doorway and 
a little railing and then behind that maybe a cut and then behind that something else. And then you go out in the street and then you can actually find the real deal, hopefully. Um, And I think when you get closer to the real deal, you almost have to afford space for the real deal to reveal itself. So I've been having, you know, a lot of my inquiry has really just been paying very close attention to phenomena as they're arising. Um, And so I'll kind of see like, I've started noticing very briefly those moments in which something appears in my field, um, which I later realized is a cyclist. But for a moment, my brain hasn't quite figured out right. what it is. Yeah. So this yeah. Amorphous, liminal yeah. thing. And the curious part about that is the quality of what you experience when it's in the liminal, not formed space is very... Um, satin setting really it's it's kind of yeah. what you are bringing to it as much as anything well, so I just want to so. build out one more sort of piece for you I was um, watching your dialogue with Jordan Peterson from years ago um, yeah like five years ago but and by the I way wish we could have another I wish we could have another well I think what what was really shining out for me was the well, partly this kind of journey from like the IDW to what you're doing and how what you're doing is so much more bringing out that like collaborative dialogic and, you know, like figuring out how to really like achieve intimacy and, you know, the basic interpersonal stuff is actually happening. But um, with Jordan, one of the things that you agreed on was that the meaning crisis, um, which can be about, you know, the perennial continual crisis of being, but the very specific historical trajectory of meaning crisis has different inflection points. And you can go back to World War II, you can go back to the time of of Nietzsche, you can go back to Descartes, you can go back to man's breakage with the natural world. Um, And so what I'd like to do now is present a piece which has kind of just been in my head and esoteric and see if we can bring it in. And it's a notion of, um, I've called it like the landscape of trauma. Um, Mm. And what it is, is an inquiry into the nature of trauma, which is revealing of a lot of these kind of elements of reality that you speak to. Um, The sort of inexplicability of, people with past traumas finding themselves finding other people in the world and coming into relationship with them um neither of them being conscious of it and this kind of being a invisible but meaningful like attractor and force um and the way in which trauma is stored in the body as a as a really embodied um property of being as a kind of disconnection from aspects of self. Um, it seems to me super tied up with embodied cognition and it is. Jordan kept on talking about like, you know, bringing order is like a way of kind of narrowing in the bounds of chaos. And for me, like it's, 
I can see a way in which the there's a landscape of trauma which we are the embodied inheritors of and are coming back into relationship with spirituality and nature is really uh, like a going down and into and releasing all of those like um, you know traumas traumas of the 20th century alone are enormous you know I was yeah. My grandfather was in the Second World War. His father was in the First World War. Before that, they lived in under awful Victorian English culture. And, you know, and then we can go all the way back to how is it that they became so alienated from nature in the first place. Um, so, yeah, I, would, I wanted to kind of to hear how you might play with, play with that notion. Well, you, th you, you throw... Uh, three things that, and I don't think they're happenstance. And it's interesting how there's often a gathering of things together beyond sort of our egocentric awareness of how they're gathered together. Uh, so you 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 brought up uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, um, um, and then you talked about sort of the, the 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 liminal place where you can where sense making is you can get a more direct phenomenological. Uh, awareness of it and how set and setting matter, um, uh, and then and then you moved into the fact that responding to the meaning crisis, and this is something I need to talk more about. I'm going to talk more about, um, uh, and this is you know the work of Levine and others about um, dealing with trauma um, and both collective and individual trauma, and the way in which trauma gets embodied in individuals and the way it gets embedded into social systems. Um, and so why do I think all of those um, relate to each other? Well, first of all, it's interesting that Neoplatonism actually, uh, uh, well, sorry, Eastern Orthodox Christianity, I should put it. And the person to talk to about this, of course, Jonathan Pajot. Uh, Jonathan's a colleague of mine and we have a very good relationship. Um, I, I got to meet him once in person and uh, I really, really respect what he has to what he has to say, and he's a he uh, he's very much a proponent of Eastern Orthodox Christianity. But one of the things that's clear in Eastern Orthodox Christianity is the way it brings the Neoplatonic project that we were talking about earlier, the vertical and the horizontal, of trying to refine and clarify um, intelligibility so as to enhance ontological depth perception and to you know. Uh, do the anagoge, do the ascent, right? But th that Neoplatonic element, which is, is very present in Eastern Orthodox Christianity, has been integrated with aspects of Christianity that have to do with exactly what you're talking about, which have to do with uh, trauma. Salvation ultimately means healing. And the healing that's being dealt with there is the sense that we are, in some sense, uh, broken, bent, damaged, um, and that um, that is something that has to be addressed in an embodied fashion. This is part of the mythology of the incarnation. The logos has to be embodied in order to not only bring us the intelligibility of the logos, but to confront the trauma that we embody as people. Um, and so that's being brought together um, in the Neoplatonic Christianity, where the, the healing, the trauma, but also the ascent of intelligibility, the logos and uh, the, the healing.
the logos and the salvation come together in the incarnation, which is an ancient word for embodiment, right? Um, and then the point that that puts you liminal, that puts you into right, the, the place, right? The place where the icon actually sits. The icon sits, and you, you already referenced it. It's something that you can see, but it's just beyond your grasp. And that, that's a liminal, like the liminality that you're describing phenomenologically. You can see it, but you can't quite see through it. You can see it, but you can't quite see what it means. And you're on that space of trying to actively make sense. And notice how all these are circling around each other in a very sort of pregnant uh, fashion. And they're sort of bouncing off each other and connecting and coupling, attracting to each other and affording each other, articulating each other. And I don't think that's coincidence. I think that we need to deal deeply with the integration of those three, which is the, right, and think about the, the, the virtues that are needed for each, perhaps as a way of thinking about it. Uh, so intelligibility requires, right, the, 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 the practice of the dialectic and right, what, 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 what that would demand from us. But that has at its heart a kind of receptivity to the anomalous, to the liminal, to the not yet, so that I can move beyond where I am. And, but that receptivity is enmeshed, is bound up inseparably with dealing in the ways in which I am closed off from receptivity because of trauma. And that if I can't release, if I can't um, open myself up beyond that, Michael Washburn calls it body armor, which I think is a wonderful way of putting it. If I can't, if I can't learn to become aware of it and let it go, which is not something you can pretty much, it's not something you can do on your own in an autodidactic fashion. You need, you need other people um, in a very sort of profound way, um, which is why, of course, you also find yourself going into the ecclesia, going into the church, right, or going into the sangha. Um, so I think that you're, again, it's interesting how you can, I can see a low, Heraclitus said, don't listen to me, but listen to the logos in my speech. So in, through your speech, I can, I can sense a logos in the way, in, in how these things are coming together. And, and, I, and what we're doing hopefully together is realizing how they belong together and what they're pointing us towards. They're pointing us towards the deep integration uh, between anagoge, uh, uh, you know, uh, an enhancement of ontological depth perception, a courage and a willingness to move into the liminal and the anomalous and relate to it as, as something of wonder, but that that cannot be undertaken without, um, it, it is necessarily bound up with the healing of the trauma that blocks our appropriate receptivity and that that is something that has to happen dialogically. Um, this is again why I think we need something like a religion that's not a religion and not just an ideology and not just a personal belief system, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, that's how I was forward to respond to what you said. That's incredibly astute, John. Very, um, you have seen through the ruse of my language um, into, what, into what sort of is um, holding me captive right now. Um, no, that's a poor way to put it. But um, well, I was telling you a little bit before that, um, 
my, you know, my big inquiry, the piece that I'm sort of most bringing to this um, discourse is from an understanding of Islam and Islam's relationship to the West. But now I find myself almost kind of stepping back a little bit from that inquiry. And I'm trying to, to figure out the Jesus piece. Um, the thing, <laughs> which is, you know, it's salient incredibly to, to what you're saying, because I grew up in a Christian context, um, imbued with, uh, real, real faith, you know, the, the use of the, of the name of Jesus was sort of, uh, just all over my early childhood and, was in a community context until the age of 10 or 11. Um, so for me, a big part of passing it all out has been sort of, well, I think for most people, the worst thing about Christianity or the Christ lineage is Christians and the church. <laughs> um, yeah. and my father was a kind of religious man who spent a long time banging his head against the walls of the, um, the culture and institutions of the church. Um, so I guess what I'm, what, what it feels to me is that so much of the Christianity that I came from was, there was a celebration of arrival. It's like, we, we are broken and we have arrived, but have we yet done the requisite work? and drawn upon the vast array of resources available to us in order to enable that. No, what we've actually, what we're doing is, is really constraining ourselves in very limited bands of thinking. Uh, And I've been sort of dialoguing a little bit with some people on various journeys, like some are still Christian, some are kind of moving out of it into something else. Um, And this feeling of like the way that their like cognitive grammar is constrained by reference to things that they already know and the presupposition that um, that the answers are already there. Um, And for me, so much of this has been like, I took the, I mean, it's super resonant with, with your path from what I know in the sense that I kind of went atheist, went agnostic and then went by a completely different route to arrive at some sense of, um, uh, spirituality and relationship to mystery and um, contemplative practices and all of this stuff like all of that has occurred for me up until this point without any reference to to Christianity really or even the Bible or the figure of Christ so now with all of that I can kind of go back and I'm reading right. The Last Temptation and you know I've always had a weird fascination with the experience of churches um and so that's kind of where i'm at and i think you're kind of there as well a little bit i very much i mean we have very similar backgrounds i was brought up christian also uh, yourself deeply committed in it but also uh, and i think it's fair to use this word and it's relevant to what we were just talking about also, also deeply traumatized by it um and then trying to work out right relationship to Christianity is something that I, I've needed to do, obviously, individually. Um, but it's also resonant with, you know, 
the, I don't know quite what this refers to, but the West's relationship, the, the, the Commonwealth that came out of Christendom, right? it still has some relationship, deep relationship to the cultural cognitive grammar of Christianity and trying to work out very quickly. Um, yeah. You know, even if it's not traumatizing, you know, even if the transmission and the discipline is not traumatizing, the absence of the working through trauma in relationship yeah, yeah. to some sort of spiritual framework is in itself the guarantor of the transmission of the trauma of the past because we are almost yeah, yeah. all of us yeah. the descendants yeah. of yeah. countless wars and um, you know awful things that happened in social contexts where there was no possibility of releasing that trapped uh, energy I think that's well said, the, the, the idea that uh, we have built uh, many patterns, complex patterns of interaction, both intrapsychically and uh, interpersonally. Uh, and this is sort of a naturalistic version of karma, if you will, uh, that sort of permeate and self-perpetuate through us and through our culture um, and our relationship to each other and our relationship to the environment. I mean. We are experiencing the trauma, you know, that we've traumatized the environment and it's now, that's now coming back to us um, in, in deeply powerful ways. So I think everything, I'm in deep in agreement with, with your interjection. I think it, it, it's very, very important. I, I think what's interesting is if we could put the two of these together, or, or at least that's, that, sorry, I'm going to propose this. Because um, what, what, what was happening between us a few minutes ago was you know, I see that as very much the heritage from Socrates, that idea of discourse as a way of adducing, drawing out, of trying to, like, like the magic eye, see through and try to realize the logos that's occurring between us in what you're saying and possibly in what I'm saying, but I direct more attention to what you're saying. Um, and how that could perhaps be reintegrated with the attempt to come into right relationship with Jesus as a sage and Christianity as a cultural historical phenomenon. Because I think we're facing the same thing. We have to try and draw out as that, that, that's how I, I, I used to use the word salvage, uh, but I'm now moving more towards this idea of adducing, trying to draw out from Christianity uh, in a Socratic fashion, what can be drawn out um, in a way that is integrated with trying to deal with both the personal and the collective trauma uh, and the legacies of trauma. Um, and that's a very, very tricky thing to do because, and we, we, we can see secular versions of this throughout the culture, Christianity valorizes the traumatized individual. At the center of Christianity is the cross, which is deep, which is a deep trauma induction device. I mean, it's designed to tear and humiliate a person. It's, it's designed, you don't just kill a person on the cross, you traumatize them to death, right? And so Christianity can too, can too readily valorize the trauma as opposed to responding to the trauma. 
and we can we can we can get into worshiping the victim rather than dealing with trauma and those are not the same thing those are not the same thing and so trying to do this socratic deduction of christianity and break free from the two worlds mythology is also bound up with like really wrestling with the 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 difficult relationship that christianity has to trauma precisely because it it, it valorizes and worships the traumatized individual, the victim, it can most effectively mask and blind us to actually dealing with trauma. Because it has us look so deeply at it. It's like, it's like the magic eye picture. All we can see is the little picture. We're fascinated and we don't actually get how we're supposed to see through it and deal with it. And so like the, the thing that's so close to you that you can't see it. Yes. Yes. It's like Nietzsche's idea of the shadow that you can't jump over or, or, or what Nietzsche in fact said of Socrates. He said, I hate Socrates. He's so close to me. I'm always fighting him. And so that's the, that's the sort of thing. Um, I don't hate Christianity, but Christianity is so close to me. I'm always fighting it <laughs> in that, in that, hopefully respectful and joyful way, precisely because, um, and this is something that's, I mean, thank you, Jacob, you're really taking me to sort of the cutting edge of my own reflection right now, so I appreciate that. I wanna, I, I wanna genuinely thank you for that. Yeah. Right? But, but, but this is where I'm at right now, but really trying to understand, right, um, exactly what you're saying, that you know, the, the, the affordance of anagogue I'll, I'll represent these with like the, what you did, the up and down, and then the dealing with trauma, they're inseparably bound together. And, and we have a traumatized relationship with Christianity, but it's made especially problematic because of the, the, the way trauma is actually valorized in Christianity in a, in a symbolic way. I'm not saying that Christianity is masochistic or sadistic. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there was, I think Gerard is right, there's a profound understanding there of, of our tendencies to scapegoat and project our trauma and all that, but it can be so lost because Christianity has made this so familiar and like it's an odd thing that people wear crosses around their necks and they've lost how odd this is. Imagine if someone carried around a chain that had a guillotine on it. We'd go, whoa, what's wrong with you? That's weird. And then, then say, well, that's the relationship of what I hold most, that's a symbol of what I hold most sacred. We go, oh, no. Mm. But we've lost all of that in the cross. There's so many more pieces. We're going to have to talk about it again at some point. But just to, to bring a couple of them to bear, I think what's becoming salient to me is like the way of approaching the character of Christ or the scripture for me has to be done in the same way as one would approach a work of literature. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence. We have this great lineage of like literary adaptations of the underlying meaning structures in the story, oh, Lord of the Rings, so forth. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this, this induces a more interpretive um, mode of understanding, which is, And I think the other key component 
um, which kind of Zach is talking a little bit about and has, you know, kind of comes a lot out of the kind of psychedelic Terence McKenna lineage for me as well is about the primacy of experience. Um, and, and that the, the key, one of the key sort of axioms of making community work meaningfully is going to be that the individuals who constitute the community and themselves capable of leaving it, going out and being on their own in solitude, getting direct relationship to, um, world. Um, and then, you know, coming back in, but there has to be that sort of, yeah. And that's, that's really speaks to that experience that I was having in the, in the Orthodox churches. It's like, you know, because of how much I've kind of opened myself up, I'm getting a lot more walking down the street and observing day-to-day life than I am um, inside of the temple. The temple is kind of like a big, you know, some days I I quite enjoy it and I find it contemplative, but very often it feels like a a bit of a trick almost. Like it's, um, it's like not, um, Let's draw those two things together. So Tolkien and the recovery theory, right? Uh, and so I think this is very much, uh, so Tolkien had an idea that fan- there's two types of fantasy. There's escapism, which, you know, and entertainment and whatever, right? And then he had what he, like, he called his recovery theory. And the idea is very much like what happens with when an anthropologist goes to another culture and has to go through the difficult process of enculturating. And then the point is not just to see that other culture, that point is very important. It's a dialogical point. It's not to create a treatise or a monograph. The point is, you, and then when you return to this culture, you see your culture of birth from the eyes of the other culture, and you see it, and you recover it. You have an insight into it in a way you didn't. And, and going into a church should be like that. It should be like, and I, and I mean this respectfully, it should be uh, an enacted fantasy that, right, makes it possible for you to go out into the street and recover that world more, more powerfully. I think in that sense, religious practice is very much like augmented reality, like, you know, the heads up display of the pilot or when people are playing Pokemon on their phones and it's getting like we, we, we create a, a kind of imaginal uh, pretense, but not because it's false or, or, or entertaining, what it does is it actually takes us out of the familiar so that we can recover the familiar with unfamiliar eyes and we can see it more deeply, more profoundly. I think the point of going to church is exactly what happens when you leave the church, not what's happening in the church. I teach my students the exact same thing in meditation. Right? The med- it's, don't think of meditation as a vacation. Think of, an edu- think of it as an education, an inducing, right? And it, it, and coming out of your your seated practice is an integral part of your practice. You're trying to carry over metaphorine, metaphor, transfer over what you've cultivated in your, your sitting to your everyday consciousness, cognition, character, and communitas. It's that recovery. That's the point of it. I call this the, I sometimes call this the trans world. You're, 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 not, going, you're not moving between worlds. You're, go, you're going into a, like a fantasy so in order to more deep, and I mean this again powerfully in Corbin's sense, an imaginal thing, so that you can more deeply return to this world in its depths. And this, is, so this think, is the correct understanding of how to relate to the mystical experience, I think. Yes. And it's also 
you know, bringing in the literary component, it's Frodo leaves the Shire, goes on this yeah. epic journey, um, but at some point there's like the return to the Shire, but the Shire is not the same as before he went on the journey. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. It's, uh, and he's not the same either. The two but right are- now we've left the Shire and now we're just saying like, oh, none of that, you know, the last 2000 years, don't worry about any of that. Um, <laughs> we're over it. Well, we have left the Shire and we haven't. We're still enmeshed, like we were talking about earlier, in a lot of ways. But yeah, I, I like if we could, I, I really think, uh, I would really like to put you into contact with Paul Vanderclay and get you to go on his show and have a discussion with him. I think he'd be very interested in having a discussion with you. Um, I've been thinking uh, about reaching out to him. So that's uh, right. Well, if you'd like to, uh, uh, um, you know, once this video is available, uh, I, and then I can use it as a link and introduce you to him. And I think he'd be very interested in talking to you. Um, Jacob, I have to go soon. Um, but uh, a couple things. I would like to, since you've recorded this as video, I'd like to upload this to my channel as well, Voices with Raveki. So if you could send okay. me the files, that would be great. And secondly, I'd like to request to have another discussion with you because I found this one really powerful. And I, I, you have a very penetrating mind and I would like to, and I mean this again in a complimentary fashion, I'd like to play with you more about it because I think it's, it's really, um, well, like I said, it's really inducing. I feel very much there's a lot resonating between us. I'd like to explore it more. It's a real honor to, to hear those words from you, John. Thank you. Well, well the, the, the honor is yours. Um, unfortunately, like I say, I do have to go and I want to thank you, but uh, let's set up and let's talk again soon, like within two or three weeks. Awesome. Possible. If you can give me these files somehow, because I really enjoyed what happened here and I'd like, I'd like it to be more widely available to, to my listeners. I guess that's who our viewers. Um, and then also, if I have that link, I, I want to connect you up with Paul because I think, I think it would be lovely if you had a conversation with him. Great. Yeah, I'll get all of that to you. And uh, it's really good. It feels like we're just like arriving at something that needs to be opened up. Follow this up. Yeah. That's also another reason why I'd like to get a copy of this because I want to watch it again. And then you and I meet again and try and get back into the momentum of this and try and really explore this because, and I meant what I said earlier. I, re- I always try to say what I mean or mean what, or I, mean what I say. Uh, but um, you were really taking me sort of to the threshold of where I'm thinking right now, the threshold, the liminal area, right? And so I, le- I want to get back there again. And I, I, I foresee that I need your, your help in doing so. So I would appreciate that. Awesome, John. It's been great to have you on. It'd be good to have you on again, or I'll be on your channel or something, but I'll work it out. And yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, well, well, let's get this one up onto Voices with Raveki, and maybe I'll send you the link next time, and then I'll directly record it, and we can upload it there as well. That's a good idea. In fact, let's, let's make that a plan of action going forward. The more viewers, the merrier. So. Yeah, yeah. You, I really, and you, you understand, of course, and I don't think this is, well, it's obviously biasing in some way, but I think right now it's also a heuristic. It's a helpful heuristic. There's a deep similarity between our respective paths. It's very helpful, very helpful for getting into sort of uh, philia, you know, that the, the, the appropriate kind of intimacy for, for, for dialectic. So, I, I, yeah, I, I, I look forward to talking to you again. Right. Next time we'll talk about the horrors of Christian rock music. and. Um... <laughs> 
Yeah, okay. <laughs> Take good care. A great pleasure meeting you. Great pleasure. Likewise, John. Really great. Thank you.